you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m., at our Todd's Row campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. In 1996, I was a freshman at Farmville Central High School in little old Farmville, North Carolina, kind of out outside of a university town, but its own little uh, piece of paradise, the, the at one time largest tobacco producing uh, area in the world, a uh, southern town of southern towns. And I, uh, I had a future dream as a freshman and in little old Farmville, that I was going to be the next Joshua Bell or Yitzhak Perlman. I was going to play in Corner Weissen and the Paganini uh, minuets, and I was going to, uh, going to change the world with my virtuosity. And so you do those things that you do. You take your private lessons for violin. You uh, play in the extra quartets. You go and do all-state orchestra, and you put everything else aside. And that included uh, freshman English with Miss Moy. Everybody cringed when you found out, you know, that little piece of paper you get in the middle of summer, who your teacher is. If you knew you were getting Miss Moy, you went, a year with her. She was uh, very strict. Her pet peeve was uh, the difference between I am good or I'm doing well. And if you messed up, she'd make you uh, write out like hundreds of times, I am doing well. You know, like this was a big thing. And, and I really didn't like her and I loved violin. So I pretty much ignored what she wanted us to do including a capstone project that first semester. Memorize 30 lines from Romeo and Juliet. We were all supposed to do this, and I went to youth orchestra instead. I went to extra practices instead, and I ignored this and never told my English teacher mother that this was an assignment we had. Uh, she had no clue. I show up for the day that we're supposed to do our recitations, and I stand up and say, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? And I sit down. She was furious, so offended that I had uh, discounted this assignment, both Miss Moy and my mother, quite frankly, uh, especially when it turned out that I was not the next Yitzhak Perlman, that uh, the best violinist in Farmville, North Carolina, does not quite go too far in the world of uh, professional music. My mother and my teacher offended that I wouldn't memorize this, this beautiful telling of what is going on in the Romeo and Juliet play. It's this part in the story where uh, Juliet basically says, look, Romeo, I like you a whole lot, but your name is problematic. Your name is my only problem. If you would change your name, things would be perfect. We wouldn't have this family feud. And Romeo's like, sure. But it doesn't, it doesn't sound as good when you tell it that way, Right? It should sound something like, Romeo, Romeo, where art thou, Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name. Or, if that will not be, be but my sworn love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. It says, but thy name that is my enemy, thou art thyself, though not a Montague. What is a Montague? There's nor hand, nor foot, nor arm, nor face, nor any other part belonging to a man. Oh, be some other name. What's in a name that, that we should call a rose by any other word would, word would smell as sweet? 
So Romeo would, were he not Romeo called. Retain that dear perfection which he owes. Without that title, Romeo, doth thy name, and with that name, which is no part of thee, take all myself. And Romeo says, I take thee at thy word. Call me but love, and I will be new baptized. Henceforth, I will never be Romeo. It hits a little different uh, in poetry versus narrative, right? Right? Okay. There's a power in, uh, in imagery and in rhyme and breaking from our normal prose of, of expressing uh, the deepest passions and yearnings in ways that narrative don't give us. There's, there's plenty of great love stories, right, that are novels. They sell them in the grocery store all over the place. There's, there's uh, narrative love stories, and yet often we find that we turn to poetry to express uh, what love and desire and longing look like. In the Bible, uh, 43% of our text is narrative. So uh, they went from here to here. They went from there to there. Here is this uh, thing you should go do. 23% of the Bible is prose discourse. So um, here are uh, a set of propositions that Paul will write primarily in his letters uh, we are all sinners who fall short of the glory of God. Um, the, you know, kind of these propositional statements. And then a full 33% of our Bible is poetry. You can see in Exodus that there's the narrative version of the telling of them going through uh, the Red Sea. And then immediately Miriam sings a song that talks about the power of God to, to hold back the waters and how just the, the words of God's tongue can stop the seas and can deliver nations. Uh, there's a sense that narrative wasn't enough. We primarily think of, pro, or of uh, poetry in the scriptures as the Psalms, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down by still pastures. Or, you know, Psalm 96, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. There are times when narrative doesn't suffice what is going on. And sometimes it is uh, negative. We were talking out in the gathering hall this morning about the Psalms lament and, and how, uh, how in imagery, in rhyme, in uh, wailing out to God, they even name their frustrations. But there's a whole section of poetry that most of us skip in our Bible, and it's the wisdom literature. We have these uh, set of books that you kind of flip pretty quickly by. We have the book of Proverbs. Uh, they're frequently found on coffee cups and on uh, Christian products in the bookstore because this is the fun wisdom literature. This is the stuff that says, if you do this, your life will be good. Here's what it looks like to be favored by God. Here is uh, the beautiful parts of being God's people. We have the poetic story of Job, which is the story of here's what it looks like when nothing is good, when everything's rotten, where you know you have done right and yet things are falling apart. I think often we can relate to both those, those stories. And then there's Ecclesiastes, this, uh, here's where you are when things just don't make sense. When you do what the, what the Proverbs tell you and things don't go right, or you uh, weep and you mourn and things do go right. Uh, you know, it was made famous uh, for every season. There's a, somebody sing it for me. No, Marilyn, you're not going to sing it for me? There's a time for everything, a time for weeping, a time for mourning, a time for laughter, a time for tears. I, my dad listened to oldies. I know this song, but I can't break into tune right now. 
Rachel, you can do this right now. You'd save my life. Yeah, so about half of you know this song. Right. This is probably your primary exposure to the book of Ecclesiastes. The, the refrain in Ecclesiastes is, is, it is all absurdity. It is all vapor. The, the author of Ecclesiastes basically says, you can try, you can do whatever, but ultimately... You just have to follow God's rules and trust that it's going to work out. And then there's Song of Solomon. Uh, it, it occurs in the lectionary one time in three-year cycle. Today's passage is the only passage from Song of Solomon you will ever hear, I think, a preacher preach on unless they get brave enough to try to preach the whole book. Because the Song of Solomon is erotic poetry. It is filled with uh, descriptions of uh, this woman and her lover, and it is vivid. It is uh, at times shocking, and yet it's in the canon. It's part of the text that we have received from our our grand tradition of uh, the Hebrew people and that has then been embraced as it's been canonized in the fullness of Scripture. So the church thought it was worth keeping this strange part of our wisdom literature, this poetry of deep, deep love that can only be expressed in the physicalness. And so we get this one little passage that leaves us nothing uh, explicit to have to deal with. This story of uh, the woman in her home uh, describing uh, her lover in the depths of of his uh, youth and virility. He's like a young stag, like a a deer out in the wilderness. And he calls to me and says, come to me, my beloved. The the season is at hand. The fruit is ripe. The things are good. Come to me. And she is overwhelmed with love for her lover. Uh, Jewish and Christian tradition has struggled with how do we read this poetry? How do we uh, make sense of it? it? It, along with Esther, are the only two books that never actually mention the word God or Yahweh or the Lord. There is uh, no explicit move towards, okay, here, let me interpret this uh, sexual imagery for you. And so instead, uh, the people of uh, Israel and then the church have had to figure out how to interpret it. And uh, the, the answer has been an allegorical reading Everything represents something else. And, and tradition holds that uh, this woman is at first Israel and then the church, and that this man is uh, at first God and then God in Christ. And that, that for some part of our tradition, uh, narrative was not sufficient to describe the love between God and his people. That poetry, that... that uh, dragged us into our closest human analog of, of uh, physical deep relationships would, would maybe tell us more about what the love of God might look like. This Song of Solomon undergirds the whole of the wisdom literature for uh, to trust God when things are good, to trust God when things are bad and to trust God when it's all just absurdity requires that there be a depth of relationship that is unwavering. That 
that we can't even accurately describe, and so we're going to use our closest analog, which is uh, human relationship and sexuality, uh, to describe the depths of commitment of this woman and her lover. The lectionary skips a couple verses because it starts to get kind of uh, dicey, and you don't want to, to kind of have to wade through all that, but uh, they miss the most important turn in the book of Song, Song of Songs. Just three verses later, I belong to my lover, and he belongs to me. The, the, the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, however you want to call it, does something that most other books do. It levels the ground between God and his people. And in all the other texts, God is in some form or fashion uh, transcendent and uh, bigger. The Song of Solomon draws us almost back to the garden and says, God is imminent and near. There is no power dynamic at play where he is forcing something on you. Instead, he loves you and desires you to come and to love him. And yet at the same time, it is uh, but an analog, right? It is uh, a, a metaphorical way of talking about the relationship between God and his people. Because we know that uh, discussions of sex can be difficult, right? We don't like to do it. Uh, we, we have like a sex education thing in the church that people get really uncomfortable about, like teaching our youth about sex. Uh, it's, it's distorted all over the world, right? Uh, if you look at uh, Main Street Media's perspective, uh, how am I losing the words this morning? A portrayal of sex, it is distorted and creates these false expectations. Uh, the damage that pornography does for our understanding of sex and love the damage that the church does when we make sexual sin out to be far worse than any other sin. We struggle to talk about sex. And we, we, we often find that so many of us struggle to, to live in fully refined sexual lives and it brings all sorts of brokenness into our lives. And often the church holds up uh, marriage and sex as the pinnacle and yet in scripture we have uh, these complex pictures of what good human relationships look like. At one point, it's uh, these polyamorous Old Testament relationships. Then it's uh, this picture of a man and a woman. Then in this picture, Paul says, no, actually, the best relationship is just with God. Put aside sex and human relationships for uh, the best relationship is celibacy and uh, uniting our hearts with God. We've harmed... Uh, folks who've struggled with sexual sin. We've harmed folks who are in singleness. We've harmed folks uh, who, uh, who are seeking to be whole people by the way which we've weaponized uh, sex as, uh, as toxic. In, our, in our, uh, our gospel reading today, uh, Jesus is talking about what makes you unclean. And he gives this long list of vices. And the first one is sexual sin. And then it goes on and on to things that are basically like tomfoolery. There's this whole grand list of things that, uh, that display our brokenness and our distance from God. The Song of Songs calls us using this broken imagery uh, to be fully united with God, to give our hearts wholly to him. And then we see how it's played out in the rest of wisdom literature. And then in our New Testament readings, we see that these are writings for people who are united to God who are in Christ. So often we make uh, the ethical imperatives of the New Testament be about them out there, but actually these were always texts for us in here. 
And they invite us to consider what it would look like to ethically live out a relationship that looks like the picture from Song of Solomon. In James, it's a a picture of an embodied love that cares for the marginalized, that says, uh, if you don't care about these people, the orphan, the widow, the the sick, the dying, the, uh, those who need comfort, then you don't actually have a relationship with God. And then the gospel says, if you think that what you eat is what makes sin, you have missed it completely and you don't understand what it means to have a relationship with God. That really, it's the, the thoughts and desires of our heart that shape our, uh, our virtue or our vice. But all of this is rooted in a deep and abiding relationship with Christ. A relationship that is uh, is hard to describe with human words. One that we will use narrative and prose discourse and poetry to get at. One that we will uh, seek metaphor and simile. We will use rhyme and uh, our best efforts and yet uh, we know that even that falls short. But then in Christ... In love with God, our beloved, we are called to go and to be, to embody this love in real and powerful ways for the world. For the biblical authors, love that is simply uh, sentimental or in our head is not love at all. It is a deep uniting that we see throughout the whole narrative of Scripture and that we'll see for the rest of this series as we unpack wisdom literature and this invitation to trust in this God who calls and says, come to me, my beloved. Come for the time is at hand. Draw near to me, my beloved. Amen. Amen. Would you pray with me? Holy and loving God, we struggle to even describe what it means to be yours and for you to be ours, to be your people and you to be our God, to love you in the depths of our being and to trust you. And yet, we try, we tell stories. We give examples and we uh, seek creative imagery to tell uh, of our love and your love. Lord, help us to know what it means to be holy, your beloved, to come to you and to be in Christ, to be people who uh, love is not sentimental and fleeting, but is deeply embodied and is uh, displayed through ethical action. Lord, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts and the desires of our mind that would be wholly united with you and that we would be a holy people. Lavish us with your grace. Fill us with your spirit and sustain us by your powerful word. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.